We are smack dab in the middle of our summer series. That summer series is called Spirit and Church. And throughout the summer months, we are exploring chapters 12 to 14 in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're talking about the role of the Spirit in the church. And uh, the verses we are looking at today in chapter 13, uh, chapter 13, as you may know, is often referred to as the love chapter because it has so much to teach us about the subject of love. And the verses we're looking at today are some of the most familiar and most beloved verses in all of the Bible. And I do want to invite you to stand as we read God's word. I'm just reading verses four to seven, but this is God's word and this is what it says to us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and in the very beginning of verse 8 says, love never ends. So you can go ahead and grab a seat. You know, I will tell you that I always approach uh, these familiar passages with a bit of trepidation. The Bible's most famous and most loved passages are that way for a reason. They communicate profound truth in a simple and memorable way. And sometimes the best thing to do is just to sort of get out of the way and let them have their effect on us or on you. And so I don't want to take this beautiful description of love and turn it into a technical discussion. That's part of my trepidation with a passage like this. But the other part of my trepidation with passages that are so familiar and so beloved comes from the fact that they are often familiar and loved because they've been ripped out of their context. And there are lots of examples of this. So Jeremiah 29 verse 11 comes to mind where it says, "For I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans for for welfare and not evil to give you a future and a hope." It is an amazing promise. I think we all love to hear that God has this plan to prosper us and give us a bright future. But we have to remember that it was actually a promise given to the Israelites near the beginning of 70 years of exile in Babylon. So sometimes God's plans for us are first exile and hardship and then prosperity. And I think 1 Corinthians 13 is familiar to most of us because it is a passage that is read at many or even most Christian weddings. I have a wedding sermon from this passage It's not that it's wrong for us to take this passage and apply it in the context of our marriage. It's just that the context of this passage is actually about the relationships we have with one another in the church. And so I don't want to diminish the place this passage ought to have in your marriage. I just want to expand it so that you come to see it as including all of your relationships. Now, this passage is essentially a list. It's a list of 15 characteristics of love. Now, we could work our way through them sort of one by one. But what I want to do is I want to focus our attention on four big truths that we discover about love 
from this list. And the first one is that love is both an attitude and an action. And I think it's important that we understand both of these things because it protects us from the dual dangers of complacency on the one hand and sentimentality on the other. So let's start with the attitude part of the equation, that love is an attitude. You know, it is commonplace to highlight the fact that this list contains 15 verbs that are used to describe love. That's important to note. In the words of the 90s Christian rap group, DC Talk, love is a verb, right? Now, it's not that that's wrong. It's just that seeing love as an action doesn't actually tell us the whole story. And we need to understand that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is not love. This is part of what we saw last week in the first three verses of this chapter. The chapter begins by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Those verses should send shockwaves through our system. I mean, just think about the startling nature of what Paul says in verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this is a different calculus than we are accustomed to using. See, we see headlines about, you know, some tech founder or some CEO who is a noted philanthropist. They give away countless millions of dollars. They give away the kind of money we could only dream of. And we kind of ooh and awe at the sums of money they give away. Now, I'm not saying that philanthropy is not admirable, But in truth, our actions can't be separated from our motivations. And just giving away all you have does not constitute love. You can do all sorts of good things, even sacrificial things like philanthropy, and have the motivation be something other than love. Doing those things to appease your guilt or to make a name for yourself is not the same thing as doing them from a heart of love. And I point this out because sometimes when when we think in terms of love just being an action, we strip the heart and the emotions out of it altogether. Now, sometimes you see this in marriage. The bills are paid, the house is looked after, there's no lack of provisions, but there's also no warmth or tenderness. And when you talk to a spouse in that situation, they will often describe it as a loveless marriage. Sometimes you see this with children who grew up with all their material needs being met. But they still describe their upbringing as a loveless home. What do they mean by that? Well, they don't mean that there were no actions done on their behalf. What they mean is that there was no accompanying attitude or expression of love. And you can do this in ministry as well. The prophet Jonah was an example of what that looked like or what that looks like. God sends Jonah to go and preach a message of repentance to the city of Nineveh. Now, many of you know the story. Jonah refused to go. 
So God sends a great storm and then a great fish, gets Jonah to reconsider. He calls him a second time and says, go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah obeys. And in one sense, Jonah's mission or his prophetic mission was one of the most successful ministry or mission ventures of all time. The city hears his words and they repent. The entire city. What a great success. And chapter three of that book ends with God relenting from the disaster that he was about to bring on the city. But Jonah wasn't happy about it. Because there was something wrong with his heart. And Jonah chapter 4 begins like this, but it it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah had a successful ministry, but no love for the people he ministered to. And God rebukes him for that. So just doing the right thing doesn't constitute love. But this doesn't mean that love is only an emotion or a feeling. Love is both an attitude and an action. Love is a verb. As I mentioned already, there are 15 verbs listed in this passage or in these verses. And if we were to translate a bit more accurately, we wouldn't say love is patient, love is kind. We would say love waits patiently, love shows kindness. So while we don't want to strip love of its heart or its emotions, we also don't want to reduce it to mere sort of mushy sentimentality. We could say it this way, having the right feelings without accompanying actions is not love. And I think this is a good reminder for the church. It's easy to think that we've discharged our duty to love one another because we've got the right sentiment. But the New Testament is filled with reminders that this is not enough. So the Apostle John exhorts us. He says, little children, let us not love in word or in talk but in deed and in truth. That's the real test, right? The words and the talk come easy to us. Elsewhere in the New Testament, James gives us a practical example of what love really looks like. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And the answer is, it's no good. That's not love. It's just empty words and sentiment. Now, I don't share that with you because you're not doing this. One thing I love about our church is the way we, and when I say we, I mean you, combine the heart and the hands. Now, we're not perfect at this, but I think there's a good combination of genuine concern, sort of that heartfelt concern for one another, and concrete expression of that love. And I'm not saying this to pat ourselves on the back, but just to encourage you, continue to excel at those things. 
Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians begins with the words, pursue love, right? Make this your ambition. Excel at it. This is how we're supposed to be known. Second truth we discover about love from this passage is that love is perfectly described and has been perfectly demonstrated. So this passage doesn't so much give us a definition of love, but a description of love. Now, as I said, like every other pastor, I have a wedding sermon from this passage, but really up until this week, I hadn't really noticed just the thoroughness of the description of love that we are given here. And we can see that thoroughness in a couple of different ways. One is just to really note the balance that we find in this passage or in this description. Look at the first two verbs. Love is patient and kind or love waits patiently and shows kindness. And there you see both the passive and the active dimensions required of love. To show patience or to wait patiently is about not doing something. Now, this is not about patiently waiting for the light to turn green. The kind of patience that Paul has in mind here is patience with one another, patience with people. A good synonym is forbearance. To be patient is to be willing to put up with the shortcomings of others. When they disappoint you, when they fail you in some way, you're patient. One New Testament scholar suggested the word long-tempered and wondered why we don't have such a word in English. I mean, we have the word short-tempered. We all know what that means. But what does it look like to be long-tempered? With our spouse, with our kids, with the barista. What does it mean to be long-tempered or patient with anyone who is frustrating our agenda? So that's the passive side of expressing love. It's loving by not doing something. And there are other items on this list that, that, that go along those lines too. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not irritable. But then the second description of love is that love is kind. And kindness now represents the active side of love. One of the slogans we sometimes hear thrown around is practice random acts of kindness, right? It's a nice sentiment. Do something nice for someone on a whim, just kind of randomly. Now, we should do stuff like that, but the idea here is actually more deliberate. To express kindness or show kindness means that you are on the lookout for opportunities to do good to others. Showing kindness is not about duty. It's not sort of a quid pro quo thing. You know what? You did something nice for me. Therefore, now I'm going to do something nice for you. Kindness is really an act of grace. It is doing something for another even when they don't deserve it. It's an act of grace. And the best example of that is the kindness that God has shown us in Christ. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Right now, I just want to continue highlighting the thoroughness of this description of love. It's passive and active. It's also, notice, both inner and outer. So love is patient and kind, but notice the next pair on the list. It does not envy or boast. Now, envy is an internal sin, right? It's the vexation of spirit that you experience when someone else succeeds or when someone else has something that you 
want. And you can envy without anyone else actually knowing you're doing it. It's internal in that sense. Boasting is an external act. And often you do it when you succeed in some way that others haven't or when you have something that others don't. Now, it comes from an internal deficiency, but it manifests itself externally. And that same internal, external focus can be seen in the next pair. Love is not arrogant or rude. Now, you can see how those two things go together. The person who is arrogant thinks of himself or herself as superior to others. That attitude then manifests itself in their behavior towards others. You know, I'm kind of a big deal. Why should I have to wait? You're beneath me, therefore I can treat you like garbage. See, the truth is that our inner attitudes always eventually reveal themselves in our outward actions. And when you are rude to the barista or to your spouse or to your coworker, it reflects a deficiency of love. It's an arrogance on the inside that manifests itself in a rudeness on the outside. So love is active, it's passive, it's also an inner disposition that manifests itself in outward behavior. And notice also that it is balanced. So what do I mean by that? Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And I think it's important to highlight this. See, in our culture, love has come to be defined as the acceptance of everything, and not just the acceptance, but the affirmation of everything. To disagree with someone or with their lifestyle is now seen as hatred. But the biblical definition of love includes a commitment to the truth and to tell the truth. These verses from Proverbs 27 help us understand what this looks like. There it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, I memorized that verse way back from the NIV, which translates it as, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. The idea is that a true friend is someone who cares about you enough to tell you the truth even when you're wrong. They're okay to wound you in that sense. An enemy just flatters you, right? They just tell you exactly what you want to hear. We're told in the New Testament to speak the truth in love. So we need both of those things together, both the truth and love. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. Now, I said love has been perfectly described and perfectly demonstrated. And the perfectly demonstrated part comes from Jesus. Now, at some point, maybe you've heard uh, that, you know, it's a good exercise to take this list in 1 Corinthians 13 and just substitute your name for the word love. Lee is patient. Lee is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not arrogant. Lee is not rude. That, That sort of thing. You get the idea of doing that. And there is a a benefit that comes from 
doing that if you want to discover how far you fall short of the call to love others. Right? I mean, I'm out at the first point, right? Lee is patient. No, I'm not. So there's, there's some benefit from doing that. But I think along with doing that, it's important to remember that Jesus embodied every quality of love that is listed here. Now, this is something Sean mentioned last week. The best way to really understand what love is, is to look at Jesus. Now, you've sometimes heard me say that Jesus isn't just our example. He is our savior. And I say that as a corrective to the idea that the most important thing Jesus gave us was his example. It wasn't. We're saved by his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and by his resurrection. But this doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is our example. And when it comes to love, he is our supreme example because he has demonstrated what love looks like. So if you want to know what patience looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what kindness is supposed to look like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like not to envy or boast, look at the humility of Jesus. So this love that is so perfectly described in these verses has been perfectly demonstrated to us by Jesus. He embodied all of this. Third thing we can say about love is that love isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Now, that is sometimes given as a definition for humility, but I I think it's actually fitting for a description of love as well. Just notice the focus in these verses, especially in the description of those things that love is not. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, It's not irritable or resentful. Notice the focus on self in those things. We could paraphrase the attitude or the wrong attitude that sometimes manifests itself within us as, I deserve what you have. That's envy. I also deserve whatever things, whatever good things I have. That's boasting. I'm better than you and you exist to serve me. That's arrogance and rudeness. It's my way or the highway. You annoy me, and if you ever cross me, I'm going to hang on to it forever. That's insisting on its own way and irritability and resentfulness. These are the sins of the narcissist, the person who is consumed with himself or herself. Love is not like that at all. You know, we hear so much about self-care and self-love today that these things are not far from any of us. It was way back in 1986 that Whitney Houston belted out the song, The Greatest Love of All. The chorus of that song said that learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. Now, she didn't write the song. She didn't invent the idea that the idea is actually ingrained in us. Maybe now more than ever. Self-love is a big concept today. You've got to learn to love yourself before you can love others, right? That's the kind of thing we hear all the time. Now, I understand the idea. I know where that comes from. But I would just say that I think the problem for most people is not that they love themselves too little, but that they love themselves too much. If you struggle with envy, it's not because you love yourself too little. 
Now, you may not love your life or your circumstances, but you're envious because you think you deserve what someone else has. You love yourself that much. And we could do this with any of the items on this list, but think about resentment as just one of the examples. Love is not resentful. Other translations have something like, love keeps no record of wrongs. So why do we harbor resentment at times? Why do we hang on to past wrongs, even perceived wrongs that have been done against us? Now, someone may have spoken a harsh word to us. Maybe they put us down in some way or didn't treat us the way we think we ought to be treated. And we often harbor resentment towards that person or we nurse a private grudge against them. Why? Well, because they didn't treat us the way we think we ought to be treated. And our standard for the way we ought to be treated is based on the fact that we love ourselves. Now, I know there are psychological disorders where people experience self-hatred, but for the most part, we love ourselves. This is implied in the biblical command to love your neighbor as yourself or love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And Paul makes this specific in something he says about marriage. He said, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So what does it mean to love someone else? Well, a good place to start is to take a look at the way you love yourself, right? The things you do for yourself. And you start doing those for others. But the idea is not that we think less of ourselves. We don't adopt some sort of worm theology. You know, I'm the worst person in the world. I just think terribly of myself. The idea is that we think of ourselves less. Rather than thinking the world revolves around us and the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, we start to become other-focused. We think about their needs. And again, the supreme example of this is Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, everything ultimately goes back to the cross. It goes back to what Jesus has done for us, what Jesus has shown us. And what Jesus has shown us is his first thought was not about himself. His first thought was about serving others. And the cross is the supreme example of that. So love has been perfectly described. It's been perfectly demonstrated. It's not about us. We don't think less of ourselves, we think about ourselves less. A fourth truth we discover about love is that love is not gullible, but is ultimately optimistic. So verse 7 says this, 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, that sounds really nice. Some people have wondered if it is gullible, if it's a bit naive to say that. I mean, so when it says love believes all things, I want to just say that it's not talking about some sort of blind faith where you just believe whatever someone tells you because you love them. That will get you into trouble. I remember counseling one couple in the aftermath of a husband's adultery. Now, there were lots of indicators that this had been taking place. The man's excuses for late-night absences and even overnight absences were exceedingly lame to an outside observer. Love believes all things, doesn't equal gullibility. And the verse is not unrealistic. The fact that it begins with love bears all things and it ends with love endures all things is evidence of that. But there is something in the outlook of love that we shouldn't miss when it says love believes all things. Again, the passage is not ultimately about marriage, but marriage is one of the places where love gets worked out. A number of years ago, John Gottman and a team of researchers at the University of Washington did a massive study to try to determine the leading predictors of divorce. What were the things in a relationship that would most likely result in a couple getting a divorce somewhere down the line? And they dubbed those leading predictors the four horsemen. They identified one of those four horsemen, the most serious one, in fact, as contempt. That is to say, when one spouse views and treats their spouse with contempt. This means they come to see their spouse as having nothing to contribute. Their opinions are dismissed, not even really worth listening to. There's a lot of eye-rolling. There's a general attitude of superiority. The person starts to believe the, the worst about his or her spouse. That's not what love does. Love believes the best. It sees all the potential. And this extends beyond marriage to all of our relationships. One of the virtues that I try to maintain in my relationships is to be magnanimous. Now, it's a big word. It's made up of two Latin words. Magnus, which means great, and animus, which means spirit. To be magnanimous means to have a generous spirit towards others. It is to believe the best about them. It means rather than always believing the worst about someone, attributing to them motives they may or may not have, We take a better outlook than that. So when they're late to a meeting, we don't automatically think they have no regard for my time. right? When they fail to do something, we don't automatically think, oh, they did that on purpose. And you can revolutionize all of your relationships by having a magnanimous spirit towards others. That's part of what I mean by saying that love is ultimately optimistic. Love is optimistic in other ways as well. As I already mentioned, verse 7 is bookended with love bears all things and love endures all things. This means that love takes a long-term view. If you are short-sighted, if you just focus on, on the present, you're not bearing with anything. Every wrong needs to be made right, right now. You're not apt to overlook an offense 
because you want instantaneous justice, at least for yourself. You're also not likely to endure anything, let alone endure all things. Now, I know love endures all things. Doesn't sound all that romantic, does it? Now, marriage, again, gives us a good context of what endurance looks like. Now, it might not be the most romantic thought you've ever thought, you've ever had about your spouse, but a marriage will not survive without endurance. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but some of the challenges in marriage are more difficult today than they were in the past. One of those challenges is the simple fact that life expectancy has increased greatly. I mean, this, this, this means you have to endure a lot longer. Previous generations simply did not live as long as we live today. So John Kelvin, one of my heroes, his wife died before their 10th wedding anniversary. Women often died in childbirth. It was actually rare for a husband still to be alive when the youngest of the children would leave the home. In 1911, the average length of marriage was 28 years. By 1967, it had risen to 42 years. And most of those marriages ended not because of divorce, but because of death. A marriage that lasted six or seven decades was virtually unheard of. So I know it sounds crazy, but till death do us part was easier in part because death came sooner. I mean, just think about how long 50 years is. You have heard every story. You know exactly what your spouse will say. There's little that's new. So making it to 10 years, let alone 50 years, requires endurance. Love always requires endurance. And I think this is a hard word for us because we are a generation of quitters. William Bennett was a political advisor. He served under Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the the first George Bush. And he tells the story of attending a wedding where the bride and groom committed to uphold their vows for as long as this love shall last. He said he sent paper plates as a wedding present, right? I mean, this thing's not lasting. See, we've shifted from as for as long as we both shall live to as long as we both shall love. And what we mean by that is as long as we both shall have romantic feelings. Today, it's almost more surprising to have a couple make it to their 50th wedding anniversary than it is to see them divorce. But for a marriage to last, it requires endurance. But again, this is not just about marriage. When it says love endures all things. Or love bears all things. The truth is that all of our relationships require this kind of approach if they are to last. If the past 18 months has taught us anything, it's taught us that people have radically different views about everything from lockdowns to social distancing to mask wearing to vaccines. Now, it hasn't been our experience here But I keep hearing stories of friendships ended over this sort of stuff. And I think that's symptomatic of a general misunderstanding of what it means to love others. There's no being magnanimous. There's no long-term perspective in that. It's just sort of you agree with me or you're out. But love calls us to something more than that. I want to end just having you listen to these words again. Love is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, even as we have already sung hallelujah for the cross. We thank you for the chief expression of love that we can think of, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And God, we pray that as a community of people, as a family of people, God, we would express love to one another. We would embody what is said here in this passage that you would help us in those areas where we fall short to strengthen those things and to commit ourselves to loving one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.